Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, if you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new t-shirt line that's coming out, hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee, and, and it, will, it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out, leave us a note, tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built, so if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be an amazing episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about all things healthcare. But first of all, I want to thank our sponsors, Ginger and David, for always rocking my, my t-shirts, making my t-shirts, all my swag. They're a veteran-owned company, and as you guys know, all my 100% veterans, 100% of the time. So if you love t-shirts, go to Really Designs and check out Ginger and David's work. You can get my t-shirts at verticalmomentum.com. Guys, if make sure you subscribe. Make sure you follow us because you don't know what guests we're going to be having on. But this is going to be a great episode to my my, uh, my new friend. we we became friends recently, and I really respect this man. My brother, what is going on? How are you? Richard, it's so good to finally get on this podcast and speak with you. I'm joining you today from Cartagena, Colombia, and I want to wish you a happy belated 4th of July. Wow, Colombia. That's, that's, that's a long way away, huh? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. It sure is. I'm, I'm, I moved down to Colombia in in 2019, when I left the the army, previous to this, I had been up at Joint Base Lewis McCord, but I came down to Columbia to study Spanish intensively, and the the city sort of got its hooks in me, and I've been here uh, six months of the year ever since. Wow! All right, so first of all, tell us a little bit about about you, where you, and what kind of little boy were you growing up? Well. I am from a military family. I think it is very common for people who serve in the military to have relatives who served. And in, and in my case, I was born in Fort Rucker, Alabama, as my dad was going through flight school to, to fly age 64 Apaches. A uh, couple years later, my brother was born at Fort Bragg. And we, we lived all over uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, Fort Bragg. We lived in Illusheim Base, Stork Barracks, Germany. And when 
as we were growing up, my dad transitioned from active duty to the North Carolina National Guard while he studied at Duke University. He was getting an MBA. And, you know, when 9-11 happened, we all saw the writing on the wall that he was going to be deploying with the National Guard. And he had a, a work up to a deployment and he got out of the military after coming back from Afghanistan in 2005. Uh, so the, the military played a big role in my upbringing for, for me, for my brother, Trevor, uh, for my mom. And growing up, growing up, I always wanted to, I, except for a brief stint where I wanted to be a crab fisherman, probably watching too much deadliest catch. I always wanted to be uh, an army officer. And so, my favorite show of all time. We watch, we watch every single week for the last, whatever, 12, 15 years. Yeah, no, the deadliest catch is great. Uh, and I would love to go down that rabbit hole too. But the, the Army was always a calling for me. It was a calling for my brother too. Uh, so I became an infantry officer. Okay, wait, hold on. We gotta, we gotta, I want to go back for a second. Now, your dad, you said your dad was in the National Guard, went to Afghanistan. Um, did he come back okay mentally? Yes, he did. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy what happens when, when people come back from, from war. And, you know, as, a, as an Apache pilot early in the war in Afghanistan, this is like 2004, 2005, uh, you can imagine just how much uh, work those guys put in, and just how much combat they might see. But you would never know it talking to my dad. Uh, I never had this sense that he came back changed or or worse from the experience, but certainly wasn't the case for everybody in his unit. And, you know, even even now when he talks about uh, his service in Afghanistan, he he almost brushes brushes it off. Now, um, because now you said you you and your brother were in the military, so talk to us about because I love hearing everybody's recruiting story. So tell us your recruiting story. So I had a few choices, and as I graduated from. As I was getting ready to graduate high school, I was looking for where I wanted to go to college. And so I put in applications in places like UNC Chapel Hill, uh, thinking I would do ROTC there. I, I put in an application for the Virginia Military Institute. Uh, I applied to West Point and the Naval Academy. And I would say that my recruiting experience was the uncle of one of my buddies, this guy named Ben Krinsky, his uncle, uh, Ken Krinsky, was, you know, a veteran Marine officer. And he, he, uh, we met out for coffee. And Ken Krinsky shows up in this giant black truck. He's got this big, mean looking dog. I'm probably remembering wrong, but he was like 6'6" just built like built like a absolute hoss. He looks like a movie star. And 
this man talks to me about the Virginia Military Institute, and I don't remember a single thing all of these years later. I just remember that he looked like Conan the Barbarian, and he had this wild Anubis-looking dog. I wanted to be like him, and I figured that if I could go to a tough school like BMI, then maybe I would. And so that that's more or less my recruiting story, is just Ken Krinsky getting out of his truck and being sold on the Virginia Military Institute. Now, did you complete four years of college or did you go a little bit further or leave a little bit earlier? So I graduated from VMI in 2015. So that's a, a four-year degree. And VMI, VMI offers some really amazing experiences. So not only did I go through the, the four-year program there, they also gave me the opportunity to study Arabic in Morocco through the uh, Arabic Language Institute of Fez. They enabled me to take a semester abroad, and I studied healthcare economics and security in the Asia Pacific at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. And they also sent me off to Thailand to do uh, military-to-military exchange, which is awesome, in the summer of my junior year. Okay, now, you know, I was just talking to somebody from Australia and that, you know, there is for them, there is no, uh, there's no filter. They say what they mean and they mean what they say and whatever the chips fall, you know, they fall where they may. So how was your experience in Australia? Well, I showed up to Australia and I didn't have any friends. And so I sort of think to myself, like, how, do, how did I make friends at BMI? And it was just doing really, really hard things with a bunch of people. And, and as you do hard things with a group of folks, you, you grow close. And so I joined, the, I joined this team called Inward Bound. And what's Inward Bound? Inward Bound is, first off, uniquely Australian, because I, don't, I couldn't see something like this taking off in another country. But it is ultra marathon running while navigating through the Australian outback. And it's based on British Special Air Service training. So, so what we did is we trained up for this competition where you're put in a bus, you're blindfolded, you've got uh, equipment on your back, you've got a GPS tracker, you've got a backpack full of food and water, and you, as a team of four, are competing against a bunch of other teams to go from an unknown point to a known point. So they drop you off from the bus. You have to figure out where you are and then run. In our case, it was 76 kilometers. So I think it's about 43 miles uh, from your your drop-off point to your you know so-called extraction point. And so that's how I made friends uh, because – I'm I'm weird and I couldn't make friends normally like other people. <laughs> now, when you joined the military, did you go to OCS? So when I graduated from VMI, I commissioned into the Army. And that track led me down uh, the infantry basic officer leadership course route. So I went and started my military service at Fort Benning went through the infantry basic officer leadership course there, had some follow-on schools, and then uh, 
PCS to my uh, first duty station, which was Joint Base Lewis McCord in Washington State. So you were 11 Bravo? I was 11 Alpha. Okay. The, the A is for, for officer. Oh, so you, yeah, you, you were that guy. Very popular, I assure you. Yeah, hey, at least you knew how to read a map from, from running around in the outback. At least you got good at rap, map reading. Yeah, well, you would think. So now uh, you were deployed once or twice? So at uh, Joint Base Lewis McCord, our responsibility, we sort of fall under the Pacific Command umbrella. So we had the mission of being ready for conflict in Korea, conflict in the Philippines, anything like that. So we weren't on a you know, deployment uh, roster or anything like that to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. So I, I don't have a, I didn't actually deploy, but we did do military exercises like Pacific Pathways, where we would deploy from, from JBLM and go to Thailand, where we would go to the Philippines and work with the our our partners in the region okay now let me you know ask you a question because you know this we're going to be talking about leadership we're going to be talking about business um you know i have some great officers that were in my life one of my one of them was actually one of my great friends he saved my bacon uh when i was about to be thrown out of the military and i would run a wall run through a wall for him but there was also people that were his same rank where I had to respect respect the rank, but the person, and I try not to curse in here, I apologize, but the the guy was just a shit bag. <laughs> and, you know, so talk to us about the difference between of holding a rank and being a leader. Hmm. Holding rank and being a leader. Because it's well, two things. Mm. I think in, in my military career, I had uh, the really good fortune of having an outstanding platoon sergeant to guide me, uh, this guy named Brendan Shannon. And he went on to be the, the Forces Command NCO of the Year. Uh, he won the Best Warrior competition on, on JBLM. This guy was a veteran of the 75th Ranger Regiment, just an incredible, incredible non-commissioned officer. And so he was a guy who just put forth everything, everything he had for the betterment of his platoon, his company, whatever his organization was. And so I think a, a leader, especially especially a, a leader in the military, is somebody who exercises a lot of servant leadership, who puts in the extra legwork to ensure the success of their soldiers. And that doesn't necessarily mean coddling them or making things, making training less difficult, rather the opposite. And so looking, looking up to, to Brendan, he would just, he would kill himself. He would kill himself for the, for the job. He would put in extra hours. He would, just go go the extra mile to make sure that that guys were taken care of and i'm i'm looking for a good example here so he didn't so here's here's an example of 
of and I feel like I'm I'm getting uh, sidetracked from your question, but this guy would fill out baseball cards for all of his guys uh, above and beyond what was required of him. And these baseball cards were like, how's the guy doing? Are there any problems at home? Is there anything that uh, we need to be aware of? And he, I'm convinced, prevented two soldiers in our platoon from committing suicide by really just going the extra mile on these trackers and taking care of his guys and having them trust him and, and just demonstrating at all times that he was, he was there. And so when I, when I think of uh, like a leader versus wearing the rank, it's, it's not something I necessarily think about too much. I mostly just try to emulate guys like Brendan Shannon as much as possible and, and recognize those people in our formations. Okay. Now, how many years did you do in the military? I was in uh, the Army for a total of four and a half years. Now, normally when a person goes in the military, they do six or eight years. How did you do four and a half? Uh, so with uh, Army officers, uh, if you have – so I commissioned with the Army ROTC scholarship, and so that commitment is four years active duty, four years reserve. And that is your, your minimum commitment. I did my uh, four years after duty. I continued on for six months. And technically, I'm still in the, uh, the IRR. So I'm still able to be called up if there was a big mobilization or something like that. But it's, that's uh, the commitment for officers. Okay. Now, what was a reason for... Uh, not making a total career out of it. You know, was there a reason, is there something that you felt there's more out there that you want to do and accomplish? So I think uh, getting out, I really wanted to, I wanted to own something that I could stick with for years. So the military, the military is incredible at what it does. Uh, there's, there's opportunities to do all kinds of different things. There's opportunities to go to different schools. There's opportunities to uh, advance your career, continue your education. But one thing that the military doesn't do is allow you to build something that is, is relatively permanent. So what I mean by that is every single unit is on a training cycle with you know, a green phase, yellow phase, red phase. And you sort of work up to that. Uh, and it, it culminates either in a deployment or a training center rotation. And then after that, it seems that everybody goes to the four winds and everything you've been working on for a year or 15 months uh, gets goes, goes along with them. And so I wanted to build a company that, would still be mine a year later, five years later, and just have like, you know, my own baby, right? So what was your next step? How did, how did you, what did you get involved in? So when I got out of the military, I knew that I wanted to become fluent in Spanish and I wanted to start a medical tourism business. 
and now, what's medical tourism? Yeah, yeah, that was my question. What is medical tourism? So medical tourism is when people from one country where there are expensive prices or long, long lines in order to get uh, a medical procedure done, look to other countries to get their care. So in the United States, our healthcare system is about twice as expensive as comparable developed countries. We're spending something like 17% of our GDP on healthcare. Uh, most people have plans that cost over $10,000 uh, over the course of the year. And it's not that our healthcare system is bad. For people with great employer-sponsored healthcare, our health outcomes are as good as countries in Northern Europe. But there's a lot of people who are outside of the system who make too much money to qualify for Medicaid, who aren't 65 or over yet, who, you know, get a, get a medical bill or are faced with the prospect of, of going to the doctor and they just can't afford it. And so we give, we give people an option to opt out of U.S. healthcare prices and get procedures done in places like Mexico, Costa Rica, and Colombia. And the, the, most, in, the most popular procedures that we offer are dental implants. And dental implants are what you get when you are missing a tooth. It's a titanium screw with an abutment and then a, a crown. And so in the U.S., something like that costs, you know, $4,000, $4,500. And most dental insurance doesn't cover, just simply doesn't cover stuff like that. And so if somebody has to get uh, several implants or they have a full mouth of teeth that needs to be replaced, uh, we can save people like that uh, $30,000, $40,000 in, in it makes a big difference. And it's the difference between somebody wearing dentures for the rest of their life and somebody having like a real implant-supported, uh, beautiful prosthetic that looks and acts exactly like natural teeth and stops uh, the, the bone in their jaw from uh, resorbing into the face, which is what um, it causes premature aging. It causes the uh, poor health outcomes. And, and I think we really change people's lives by, by helping them get the care that they deserve. But what was the moment when you just added, okay, going from 11 alpha to healthcare? What was the mindset? What was the mindset? Yep. Um, well, there was. Why was it that that's what you picked? What was the reasoning? So well, we talked a little bit about uh, what I was doing at Joint Base Lewis and Accord. Um, we were preparing uh, for, for combat. We were uh, working with our allies. We were doing all of these, we're doing all of these tasks. But I think what I really wanted to do is help people right right now because when you're when you're in the military and you're preparing for a conflict uh 
and the the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and all of that is is winding winding way down. And I wanted to contribute and give back uh, in another way. And so that was that was my mindset. So where did you come up with this idea of medical tour? So the first time, the first time I ever heard of medical tourism was from an author named Tim Ferriss. I and love Tim, Tim Ferriss. I love yeah, him. I love Tim Ferriss too. I talked to well, I I heard about medical tourism in his book, uh, The Four Hour Work Week, and it's Escape Nine Five and uh, Work from Anywhere, essentially. And he talks about how how different prices are in different uh, locations. So most of what he's talking about is sort of what has become uh, being a digital nomad now, which is earning money in dollars and spending money in pesos or, or another currency like that. But he talks about how a knee surgery or medical care abroad is you know, just as good as it is in the United States and incredibly less expensive. And so that's that's when I got the idea for uh, building a medical tourism business to help people um, be capable of, of pulling out their passport for their health. Okay, so now, uh, because I actually had a friend, his wife had cancer, and they wouldn't operate on her in the States, so she went to Mexico and got the operation. Thank God, doing great. Um but a lot of people don't realize what you're talking about. You know what I mean? It's not, and a lot of people will think, oh, maybe the, the healthcare is not as good there. So do you get a lot of that, a lot of questions like that? Yeah. So I think there's a big association between price and quality, right? So if, if something costs $50,000 and then another, uh, the same item cost ten thousand dollars we think that the the thing they're selling for 50 grand is just way better it must be it's it's priced higher but so so the first thing i want to do is is make the disconnect between price and quality so just because something is is more expensive does not mean it's better and then the the other big objection is, oh, aren't aren't doctors and, and dentists in the United States just so much more qualified than their counterparts abroad? And, you know, I really don't think that's the case. Uh, there are some incredible medical schools in Mexico, for example, like the uh, UNAM, which is the National Autonomous University of Mexico, which is... A, a globally ranked university and the, the alma mater of a lot of the dentists that we have on our team and uh, the, the quality of the work defined by clinical outcomes is, is comparable to that in the United States. But yeah, there's, there's a sense that, Oh, if it's, if it's uh, not an American doctor or if it's not an American dentist uh, doing the operation, it's going to be of lower quality. And after seeing a bunch of dental implant cases, after uh, looking into the the clinical success of these uh, providers, I just I just don't think that's the case. Now you know a lot of people don't really. 
I'm a big guy. I'm a big. I love documentaries. I've watched a lot of documentaries on, on anything. I'll watch a documentary about a documentary. But most people don't realize that most of our medical schools that our, our students go to are not in the United States. They're all over the world. So, you know, a lot of people get that bad connotation about or if they're not from America. But like you said, you know, the, the quality is the same or maybe even better. Now, how do people, if they don't have insurance, how do they pay for that? So a lot of these uh, clinics are, they accept uh, cash and credit cards. And there are like financing opportunities. Like you can take out a, a personal loan in order to pay. But it's, it's not uh, covered by a government program or anything like that. But we hope that by making the cash price uh, so much lower than it is in the United States, that it gives a lot of uh, people the opportunity to get the care that they need. So talk to me a little bit about what, you know, because a lot of people don't realize when you move into a country, you know, you become indigenous to that area. What are the the people in Colombia? You know, you, as soon as you hear Colombia, you're thinking everybody here is drug dealers and all that crap. But what are the the homegrown people in Colombia like? Well, Colombia is a very family oriented country, so we have a lot of people here that have three generations in the same household. So. Uh, grandma lives lives at home with uh, the parents and then the kids typically don't leave the house until they're married and so you've got big extended families in sort of concentrated areas and a lot of daily life rotates around being with your family and that's that's a really beautiful aspect of the culture here um the people in colombia are are very well educated. There's some some absolutely incredible schools here, like the University of the Andes, uh, Javeriana University. So there's there's a lot of really intelligent people here. There's a lot of very exciting uh, exciting ideas, exciting people, exciting um, new businesses and things to do. And there's a deep history. Uh, Throughout Colombia, but especially here in Cartagena, because it is like an ancient walled city. So there are walls surrounding the, the center of the city here that were originally designed to beat back British warships hundreds of years ago. There's a, a Spanish colonial fort overlooking the southern approach of the city. And... There's, there's something special about a place with a history that's 500 years old. So now, obviously, you know, you hear about the, the Columbia and all that stuff. Is some of that stuff way overplayed? Well, I don't want to brush off the fact that there are you know, narco-trafficking organizations here in Colombia. I think I read recently that uh, cocaine production is 
um, just as high now as it's ever been. Uh, so there's there's definitely there's definitely CD elements in the country um, shipping cocaine into the United States. The big difference between now and the 90s, which is sort of the time of Pablo Escobar and the, the Cali cartel, all of those, uh, all of what you see on on Narcos on Netflix. The the big difference now is there's not there's not like a major there's not major violence between criminal groups at the moment. Okay. So now, you know, like when I, I I'm originally from New Jersey, and I moved down. And I was like, you know, they considered me a Yankee. So right. what was it like, you know, being a gringo moving into another country where are you where you could did you feel like an outsider when you first got? Um I certainly did. It's it's a huge barrier to be somewhere and not able to speak the language. So there are there are some countries and some areas where it's possible to get around in English, and there's a large uh, community of other foreigners, and it's it's not so much the case here in in Cartagena. So it was a big barrier at first, and a huge motivation to continue to study and to continue to learn in order to uh, be able to speak Spanish well enough to really connect with people in a meaningful way and to be able to do business in Latin America. Now, you know, it, in Latin America, you know, everything is, fancy. you know, they're very big, very big on and relationships. So talk to us about, you know, building relationships because everything in, in life, especially in business is about relationships. So talk to us about building relationships. So, I think I can start. Uh, I'm I'm in a relationship with a Colombian woman named Maya, and we met while I was still studying in the in the language school in uh, Nueva Lengua here in in Cartagena. And at first, we were speaking mostly in English. She she speaks uh, English at a decent level, but it, it quickly became apparent that language was not the only barrier between us uh, sort of the way people think is often very deeply rooted in their culture and there are a lot of cultural differences that have taken a lot of time to get used to and what are some of those cultural dis- differences uh, there's how you in- it's it's stuff that's as simple as like how you interact with people at a party so when you leave a when you leave a party in Colombia, a lot of the time what you have to do is say goodbye to everybody individually, and you know you can't just be like, "Hey, bye, guys," and and take off. And it, it, there's like a thousand little, seemingly small things like that that I've had to learn in order to, you know, not offend anybody in order to. Uh, connect with people on their own terms, so to say. And then going over into business, uh, I would say that the culture is much more sensitive than it is in the United States. And what do I mean by that? I mean, when there's a problem, uh, which is 
sort of inevitable uh, in, in business. When there's a problem, you have to sort of, we, we call it in English, like beating around the bush. And that's definitely the case. Like you have to sort of come to address issues gently here uh, because there's a lot of ego involved. There's a lot of um, people, people sort of take things on the chest in a way that they don't necessarily do in professional settings in the United States. And that was something I wasn't expecting. Okay. So now we're going to, you know, a couple questions. Uh, how long have you been in business? I've been in business since March, 2020. Which I, I might add would, historically speaking, probably the worst date to open a medical tourism business in recorded history. However, we're making the most of it. Now, obviously, you have partners in this? Uh, so I, I do this uh, in terms of like my business. It's myself and one other person. And then my partners are... 14 dental clinics uh, across Mexico, Costa Rica, and Colombia, and three ambulatory surgery centers, uh, two in Mexico and one in Colombia. Okay, so now I have a couple business questions there because our, uh, our listenership is veterans, veteran entrepreneurs, or vetrepreneurs. So if you had to start all over again, with little or no mo- no money, knowing what you know now, what would you do? Hmm. Well, I don't have to think that hard. I didn't have very much money to start with. Um, what would I do differently? Yeah. One of the big blessings, one of the big blessings of this pandemic is that everybody is so much more familiar with things like Zoom and uh, virtual meeting technology and the prospect of doing business with somebody virtually. And so in order to build this business, I traveled across Mexico. I went to Tijuana. I went to Los Agadones. I flew to Playa del Carmen. I've been in San Jose, Medellin, Bogota, Cartagena. And that travel, that travel has a major, is, represents a major expense in, in cash and in time. And if I were to start the business today, I would, I would do a lot more virtual meetings. I would do a lot more um, virtual conferencing and, and deal making like that. And I think that could help me expand the business faster and at a lower price. Okay. So what is the most important lesson you've learned? Often? Uh, I think I think the most important lesson I've learned is that if you treat your customers right, there's there's certainly karma in business. And so with my clients, I've definitely done the best I can to go to the extra mile, whether that's sending somebody flowers who's about to undergo uh, a dental implant procedure or uh giving a veteran discount, it has always come back to me in spades. Uh, so that's that's something that I might have been more cynical about, but now I think that for sure, if you just if you just treat treat people well, good things are gonna come back to you. 
you know, and I, I'm one that totally believes it, and, you know, and I believe that there's never a traffic jam on the mile, you know, and you keep doing the, those extra things, you know, good things will always come back to you. So what top pieces of advice would you give to someone if they started a business this morning? Hmm. Let's see. Nicholas, or, uh, Richard, I, I listened to your podcast with uh, Nicholas Barely, and, and I think one of the best pieces of advice I've heard in a long time uh, came out in that uh, episode you had with him, and it was you can't save your way to prosperity. Right. And so you guys had a little conversation about that. You can't yep. save your way to prosperity. And so what does that look like in business? It's like it might cost a little extra to hire somebody to work on your SEO or to cover down in some area where you're not necessarily familiar with. But you can't you can't save your way to a billion dollar company. You can't save your way to uh to bigger profits and I think I think a good piece of advice for somebody starting a business is just you know you're starting a business so commit to it uh, invest in yourself invest in your business and don't try to skimp uh, everywhere you can because that's not, a, that's not a winning strategy you know and I love that like I'm listening to uh, an audio book by Mr. Andrew Carnegie from the 20s, early 1900-1920, and he said the same exact thing. You can't save your way to wealth. So, you know, I totally agree what you're talking about. All right, last two questions. How do we find you? How do we get in touch with you? How can we support your mission? So, you can find me at uh, www.apollomedicaltravel.com. That's probably the, the best place for your listeners to check us out. And our mission is we believe everybody deserves access to high-quality, affordable medical care. And if you know somebody who has uh, been putting off a procedure or who is wearing uh, dentures instead of dental implants, we might be able to help them out. So, so definitely... Uh, Feel free to point us out to your friends. Okay, so last question. You know, um, we still live in a crazy world, still live in a COVID world. Um, and a lot of people are just stressed out. A lot of people got laid off. So there's a lot of people with financial straits. But if there's somebody out there that's listening to this right now that is having some of those dental issues, and we know how expensive dental insurance, um, you know, or other health issues. What is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to get some help or start to get some information on getting them? So, especially dental care is one of those things that can be a downward spiral. So as you as you have dental issues or pain or you're not confident in your smile, that can affect you at work, that can affect your health, that can affect your ability to earn money, which can affect your ability to do, you know, everything else. And so there are resources out there for everybody to get uh, dental care, regardless of your financial situation. 
Uh, there are free health clinics in a lot of cities. Uh, dental schools typically have uh, dental students who perform procedures under the supervision of their professors who are licensed dentists. And so there are, there are options for people to get uh, more affordable basic care close to home without having to use a service like ours. However, if you're looking for something like dental implants, if you're looking for crowns, uh, it's going to be better for you to uh, consider using a service like ours. Okay. Um, like I said, I'm so grateful that we found to connect. This is going to go out at the end of next season. Um, if there's anything we can ever do to help support you, I'm all about it. I'm all about taking care of you, you know, making sure that we get people help that they need. But sometimes, you know, when, when you're in sometimes dental pain, that's some of the experience. And if we can help one person struggling with that, then we're doing our job. Brother, I just want to say thank you. Um, thank you for the work that you're doing. And I can't wait to collaborate more together in the future. Yeah, Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's It's been a really great experience to speak with you on this podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to some of your previous episodes, and I hope we can talk again Sunday soon. Definitely, brother. Just be safe out there, enjoy the weather, and enjoy the summer. Okay. You take Bye, care. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.